welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, you can uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, I want to welcome those who are joining us online. That kind of a day. And um, I don't know who said this first, but uh, they said church would be great if it wasn't for the people. And it's meant to be humorous, and there is humor in there. We can laugh at ourselves and laugh at it. Uh, but at the same time, though, uh, there's an element of truth to it. And that element of truth is, is a bit sad and heartbreaking uh, because the reality is uh, wherever there are two or three gathered, there is conflict. That's biblical, is it not? And, uh, and that's simply because relationships will always, at some point, lead to conflict and mess. It's inevitable. Uh, because it's just simply dealing with people. It's, it's part of what makes relationships uh, work. And in many ways, it, we're kind of fooling ourselves or dece- deceiving ourselves if we think that there won't happen, that there won't be any kind of a mess. Because every relationship is a, is a perfect recipe for trouble. And I think churches are, and, and Christian relationships are far from exempt in this. I, I think actually maybe uh, what relationships need is they need to come with a warning. You know, like the warning on a package of cigarettes or, or the warning that comes before a movie, for example. This movie may involve violence and language and so forth. Well, this would be my list of warnings that go with every relationship. So warning, the following relationship includes unspoken expectations, sin and failure from the other person, unintended hurt from uh, the other person, past hurt from other relationships that creates beliefs and inner vows that distort present relationships. Guarded hearts from mistrust, anxiety, insecurities, shame with an enemy that loves to twist and distort what the other person says or hears, clumsy words or actions that are from a lack of care, being flippant or a lack of maturity, blocked goals from you or the other person, Uh, different goals for you and the other person, the manipulation of others that come from feeling empty within our soul and therefore looking to others to be Jesus to us, and finally, Warning, this relationship requires engagement, requires effort, requires work, and giving up what's comfortable for you to do what's in another person's best interest. Doesn't that sound exciting? Like, aren't we ready to go and now just join a relationship with people? I think relationships require maturity. And I have one friend, he likes to say this, that that the more childlike we are with God, the more adult-like we can be with people. But the more adult-like we are with God, the more childlike we are with people. Right? You think about it. If we, if we come to Jesus like a little child, little children are dependent upon their parents for everything. So if we come to Jesus dependent upon him for everything, we get to be adult with other people. We get to treat them with respect. We get to treat them with kindness and gentleness. And we don't need to be self-centered. But when we're adult with God, I've got it. I, I can take care of this. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of this one. You can help me in the next one. We become childlike with people. We're like little toddlers. 
fighting and bickering and arguing over the littlest things about who gets to fight over this toy or that toy, and we, get a, we end up mistreating one another. But again, conflict within relationships is, is inevitable. Uh, even in the most mature relationships, it's inevitable. I would even argue that it's necessary. The problem is, I don't like mess. I don't like that kind of stuff. As, as an engineer, I liked precision. I like things that would, you know, tight tolerances and, and things that were efficient, things that were, were effective and, and did what they were supposed to do each and every time, repeatable results. That's what I liked. I didn't like mess. Mess meant failure. Mess meant uh, things weren't going to work properly. Mess meant something was going to go wrong. I wanted perfection. And for me, perfection meant no mess. So when Joy and I were expecting our first child, Hannah, my goal was to raise a child with no mess, with no struggles, no flesh. Why do you laugh? <laughs> At the time, it made sense to me. At the time, I thought I, this, I could do this. Only did I <laughs> soon discover that she's her mother's daughter. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that because she's coming back up later. I'm going to regret that one. But now as a pastor, I'm tempted to create a mess-free church because where there's no mess, there's no hurt. And, and it breaks my heart to know that the, the church is a place where people have hurts. I mean, this, this ought to be the safest place in the world. It really ought to be. It ought to be the safest place that we can be vulnerable and transparent and, and not fear getting hurt. But reality, our history says otherwise that churches often are a place of hurt. And, and that's, again, because every relationship is, is a recipe for that. Keep in mind, the only place where you could be next to someone and not get hurt is a graveyard. Because you're dead and you can't feel it, and hopefully they're not doing anything either when they're dead. But every relationship, whether it be marriage or with your children or with your parents or with your siblings, with friends, with roommates, with a coworker, with ministry partners, and even just friends here at church, and even with God, I guarantee you that there will be seasons, not a season, but seasons where you are experiencing mess and conflict and disappointment in that relationship. But again, that mess is necessary, I think, because that's where the relationships get tested and that's where they grow. That's where they can change. It's often been said that, that you'll find out who your real friends are when the trouble hits. Right? Think about the, the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, where he's got lots of money and he goes to the far country and he had lots of friends. Lots of people who are happy to play, you know, his party, play with him in parties and, and eat and drink and have good times until when? The money ran out, and where did the friends go? With the money, they were gone. And so he was very much alone at that point. And so he found out who his real friends were because the conflict will express or, or expose the kind of friendships he has. But here's, here's what we need to, to realize, just as we are singing this morning, what if, what if those trials were actually God's mercies in disguise? What if the mess and the conflict that we're going through is actually the blessings that we need from God in order to grow? in order to mature. And I really do believe that that's, that's the case. If we're willing to embrace the mess, then what can happen is we can discover that in the mess and the conflict, we can learn to walk in love. It's easy to love when everything's going smooth, but will you love when things are not going smooth? That's the true test. In the mess and the conflict, we learn to trust. 
We learn to trust God. We learn to even trust others and be willing to risk vulnerability. It's in the mess and the conflict that we heal, that our, our struggles and our issues come to the surface. Right now, we have, we have a, a whole generation of people walking around saying, you can't say this, you can't do this because it triggers me. And you know what I want to say to them? You're welcome. I don't mean that to be facetious, but to, to honestly, I want to say you're welcome because if something inside of you is triggered, it's because something inside of you is hurting. There's something inside of you that's not yet healed. And that action triggered it, bringing it to the surface. And God, I believe, wanted to come to the surface because what does God want to do with it now? He wants to heal it. What do we want to do with it? Push it back down. So you're welcome. You're welcome that we brought it to the surface so you see what it is so we can give it to God for that healing. And it's in the mess and the conflict where those things that we're struggling with, our own insecurities come to the surface. It's, it's in the mess and the conflict that we discover the freedom to fail, the freedom to, to make mistakes. It's in the mess and the conflict we learn to be ourselves without wearing a mask, without pretending to be someone else. It's in the mess and the conflict we discover what our true heart is. And it's in the mess and the conflict that ultimately, and most importantly, we discover Jesus. We discover his heart and his love for us. So, so the question is not how do I avoid the mess? The question is what do I do when the conflict comes? When I find myself in the midst of that kind of a mess? Because it's not if it's messy, but only a matter of when. Fortunately, our Father's word helps us with this. And I love this about, about Father's word is that he doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. That what we have here, even in the heroes of our faith, we see them in their warts and all. We see the kind of failure that Abraham had as, as a husband multiple times. We see David and his failure, both as a, as a husband, but also as a father. We see Moses and his failure and, and on and on and on. We see them for who they really are, warts and all, but allows us then to learn and to grow from them. And what we have here in 2 Corinthians is an example of that. It is a relationship that is in conflict. It's a relationship in mess. Now, some of you are just kind of have joined us along as we've been going through this book. And so I want to just do a real brief recap of the book. That the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians is Paul addressing that conflict and, and showing to them his heart, showing to them how much he cares for them. Because what happened was there was a misunderstanding. There was a group of people that were sowing division between Corinth and Paul. And so he wanted to address that. And this was typical for Paul. In fact, every church he goes to, after he would leave, there would be another group of people that would come afterwards. This group was called the Judaizers. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to take these, this young church, these new Christians, and put them now under the law of Moses. You need to still follow the Ten Commandments. You still need to get circumcised. You still got to make sure you follow the, the right food stuff. And they were putting them back under the law. So it was, yes, Jesus plus Moses. Whereas Paul's gospel was Jesus plus nothing. And so they were twisting it. They were changing it. They were adding to it over and over again. And so he was trying to address that. And so we saw passages addressing the law and how the law is a ministry of death and condemnation, but grace, life in Christ brings life. And so he's, he's addressing those issues and he's, he's helping them to, to come to see the freedom they have in Jesus alone. And then we saw in chapters eight and nine, that's sort of the second section in the book where, where Paul was reminding them of a promise they made. 
that they promised to make a, a, a gift, a financial gift to support the ministry of the saints because there's other churches that were struggling. And Corinth was a very well-off church. They were a very well-off area. And so he was reminding them when he was coming that people were going to collect that, those funds and that they were to honor their gift. But they didn't have to. They weren't to give to hurt. They were to give out of their heart. Which brings us now, for the first time into chapter 10 onward, the third and final section of the book, where Paul's now going to address specifically the people who are causing the conflict. He's going to now begin to attack, uh, attack uh, not attack them, but he's going to begin to stand up to them face to face. So let's read our passage this morning. <clears throat> We're going to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the first six verses. Paul writes, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I him who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you in absence. I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with confidence, with which I propose to be, courageous against some who regard us as though we, walking, we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. All right, let's pray. Father, what a great passage we get to study this morning. There's a lot of freedom and a lot of hope in this passage. And I pray that that as you put thoughts and ideas and words into my mind and they are communicated, that your spirit would do something miraculous. That it would, it would take these words and infuse them with your life. That your spirit would take these, the truth of what you're saying and bring life to our souls. That we would see that freedom, we'd see that hope, and we'd experience life in you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so in verse one here, I want to kind of walk through it a little bit slowly to start, right? So he says, now, it's a transition. He's, again, we're entering this third and final phase of, of, this, uh, of this chapter or this, this book. And he says, I, myself, Paul, I urge you. And we're going to see his heart here, this, this begging and this pleading, the, the heart of what Paul wants. But he says, I urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Notice that. He doesn't say, I, Paul, as an apostle with authority of Christ, command you. He doesn't play the, the, the apostle card. He doesn't play the elder or pastor card. He's not playing on his authority. He's appealing to them through meekness and gentleness. The word there for meekness is the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the meek. Problem is, in our, in our society today, we've kind of, we don't really understand what the word meekness means or what word meek means. We've often equated meek equals weak. And so it's almost this soft, this passive, this, this without strength. But that's not what meekness is. The best definition I've heard of meek is strength under control. That's what it means. There's a, there's a great um, scene in the, in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird where Gregory Peck, big, I don't know, he's what, seven foot five, maybe not, but he's like six, three or something. He's a big guy, broad shoulders, and he's Atticus Finch. He's the lawyer, and, and he's addressing the, the father of the, of the woman who's accusing the slave of rape. 
And this, this father is a little man, four foot nothing sort of thing. But he's this little uh, runt of a man without any character. And there's a scene where he, he's yelling at Atticus Finch, yelling at Gregory Peck, and he spits in his face. And, and Gregory Peck does such a great job acting. You can see in his, in his expression, in his body language, what he wants to do is just pound him into the ground. And he could probably do it with one, one punch. But he doesn't do anything. Strength under control. And what's interesting is, is the, the little runt of a man begins to retreat because he can see it. He can see that strength in him. And that's Jesus. Jesus was a meek man, not a weak man. There was, there was no one more powerful than Jesus, in fact. But he had all of that strength, all of that power, always under control. And so he's urging them out of meekness and out of gentleness. Right, the kindness. He's not coming at them hard. He's not bringing the hammer down on them. He's approaching them with this meekness. He's approaching them with this kindness, this gentleness. And it's important to note, of Christ, from Christ. This is not Paul being a meek man on his own. This is not Paul summoning, summoning up all the gentleness on his own. Instead, this is Paul tapping into the life of Jesus that lives where? In him. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I, but Christ lives in me. It's Christ's meekness. It's Christ's gentleness that's coming through Paul now to this church in Corinth. And that's how he's approaching it. That's how he's coming at it. Because what he's looking for is he's after their heart. That's really important. He's not just simply saying, I need you to obey me in this one. He's approaching their heart. He's wanting to earn their trust. So he's speaking to them from his heart to theirs. That's the, that's the approach he's taking here. But it's easy to confuse this meekness and this kindness and this gentleness as weakness. And that's what his, his accusers were accusing him of in, in the church in Corinth. That basically they were just saying that he's really just a, a passive weak man. And, and so Paul's picking up on this and he's going to address that accusation in the second half of verse, verse 1 and into verse 2. So the second half in verse one says, I who am meek when face, with you, face to face with you, but bold toward you and absent. He's essentially quoting what they're saying about him. That they're just accusing him of just being really, really safe and bold when he's writing these letters, but when he's face to face, that's when he cowers away. Verse two, I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with you with confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Essentially, what they're accusing Paul of is being a, an online troll. You know, a keyboard warrior where they're hiding behind their keyboard, hiding in this, uh, this anonymous uh, avatar or name, and, and no one can trace it back to them so they can say whatever they want. But if you're ever to meet them face to face, if you ever kind of knocked on their door, they would cower in fear. That's essentially what they're accusing Paul of. But that's not who Paul is. That's not his heart. But instead, what he's doing is rather than come down on you in a hard way, which I could, and for some I may, for some I'm going to have to be. Instead, what I want to do is I want to appeal to your heart. I want to earn your trust. I want to earn your love. And he, he referenced this in a previous letter, which is probably partly why they, they attacked him as such. So keep your, keep your finger in, in 2 Corinthians, but turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
In verse 17 to 21, again, he's, he's addressing this controversy that has already begun to be brewing. And so he's addressed it in the first letter and it didn't get all addressed. And so that's why we have this, this second letter addressing it in more detail. But listen to what he says beginning in verse 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some of you become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. He's throwing down the gauntlet. He's challenging him. He says, you know, some of you who are causing trouble in the church, we're going to find out how powerful your words really are. He's challenging these arrogant people, these Judaizers. He says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Do you, do you really want me to come and beat you up? I don't want to do that. I want to come to you with a spirit of gentleness and meekness. That's what I want in the spirit from Jesus. And that's important to understand because right now today, there are a number, number of too many churches right now where people like yourself are sitting under teaching where the pastor is beating them up with God's word. I talked to one pastor and he says, I just love to get beat up every so often. That's not healthy. You should get counseling. Like, that's, that's not okay. And then even worse, to then go do that to God's people. It's not okay to beat up God's kids. That's not it. Approach them with spirit of, of gentleness and meekness. Now, it may come that there is a time for, for a more direct, bold love, but not from the get-go. That's not what Paul's wanting to do because, again, Paul's after their heart. But they're accusing him of something else. In fact, they're accusing him of living the world's way. So what does that mean? This idea of walking according to the flesh. That's a, a very common phrase in scriptures. It's important that we understand what that means. This idea of walking according to the flesh. The, the word flesh there is the Greek word sarks, and it literally means flesh, flesh and bones, sometimes translated as your body. But often when it's used, and the context will tell us, he's not talking about the body. He's not talking about Paul's living in this body. Of course he's living in this body. This, this phrase of walking according to the flesh means that Paul's taking his direction from this thing called the flesh, this thing called indwelling sin. And sin is leading him uh, astray. Now that doesn't mean that it's going to lead necessarily to immorality because the flesh can look really evil, can look really poor, but it can also look really good. It can look really religious. That's what the Pharisees had. Remember, they had the whitewashed tombs, the good-looking flesh. Very moralistic, very religious, but it was all coming out of their own strength, their own power. That's what the flesh is. It's getting your eyes off of Jesus and onto yourself and on your own abilities. And that's what they were accusing Paul of, that he was walking after the flesh, living after his own resources and living like the world. That he is essentially using the Corinthians and using his, his position simply for his own fame, his own gain, his own uh, uh, value. And so they make it even sound spiritual. Oh, he just, he's just using you to feel good about himself. He's just using you to, to, to tickle your ears, to get you to love him. And he's really just trying to withhold the hard things, which is the law. And that's what we need to go back to. And so they're making all these accusations towards Paul, but really what they're trying to do is they're trying to control him. And they're trying to control the church of Corinth. And they're doing it in a very harsh way. And that's what Paul's addressing. 
because that's the way that the, the world operates. <clears throat> See, Paul says in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Right? We live in this body, we live in this world, and we walk around in this world, but we don't fight according to the flesh. Now, notice he's introduced this war. He's introduced this idea that it's a battle, it's a fight. We're going head to head here because it matters. There are things in this world worth fighting for. And he says, we don't do it the world's way. See, what the world wants to do is it wants to control. And it's going to use that control through maybe some policies, through programs, through new initiatives, through laws, through rules, through powering up, through intimidation, through fear-mongering. Everything that the Judaizers are trying to put the church under, that's how the world operates. We've seen it for years now. Where there's a problem, we need a new law. We need a new rule. We need to control. We need to bring the hammer down. I, I mean, I was, I was appalled to see our society so quickly regress to this authoritarian sight that if you don't agree with me, I'm going to cut you off. And it didn't matter which side you, you took because it was coming from both sides. But there's a cruelty there. If you don't do this, we're going to deny you health care. If you don't do this, we're going we're gonna to throw you out. We're going to throw rocks at you. We're going to slander you. We're going to attack you. That anger, that's the world's way. Because I'm trying to control you to do what I want you to do for me. And that's what they're accusing Paul of. Because that's how the world operates. It's interesting that the world, we say we, we value kindness. We say we value um, tolerance and, uh, and good people. And yet, what do we reward? We reward cruelty. We reward cunning. We reward people who are cutthroat. We reward people who are selfish. And those are the people we elect in the office. Those are the people that we, we, um, we promote because we like the results of what they do for us. That's not God's way. Because you see, God is not interested in trying to control us. And therefore, Paul's not interested in controlling us. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. He didn't set us free to control us now. As much as there are times where I wish he would, it's not his way. It's not Paul's way. Instead, he's advocating for the freedom of the heart, knowing that we can trust our new heart, knowing that we can trust people in the conflict with this new heart, and most importantly, knowing that we can trust God in the midst of this conflict. Because see, relationships run on trust. Kind of like, like trains run on railway tracks, right? You, you take the train off the tracks and it's in trouble. Well, if you take a relationship off the, the rails of trust, it's not going anywhere. Because you can only love someone and you can only receive love from someone to the degree to which you trust them. See, if I don't trust Sue, which some days, if I don't trust Sue, then any love she comes to me, I'm like, yeah, she's, she's got another agenda here. She's, gonna, she's trying to plant some seeds that she's going to then you know, ask her a favor later. She's trying to manipulate me. So thank you very much, but I'm going to put this love over here, and I'm not going to trust it. Because if I ever did trust it, I'd get hurt, and I can't trust her. And vice versa. So in order for her and I to experience a relationship, we have to trust one another. And it's so easy for that trust to get broken in the midst of the conflict. 
And so that's what Paul's trying to restore. That's what Paul's after. That's what he's fighting for. He's fighting for their hearts. And the only way to get to someone else's heart is going to be through their mind. That's why I'm up here. I'm up here right now fighting for your hearts. I'm wanting to gain access to your hearts. I want you to trust me. Not so I can use you, not so I can manipulate you, but so that I could lead you to Jesus so you could find freedom in him. But the only way I can do that right now is to go through your mind, to, to teach and to convey these ideas and these thoughts. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to gain access to their hearts through the meekness and the gentleness of Christ coming from Jesus, through Jesus, in order to gain their trust, to gain their heart. But it's a war. It's a fight. It's a battle because it's not just simple. Because in our minds, this is where the war is going. That's where it's happening. Romans 7, 23 says that there is a war being waged in our mind between what your heart wants, wants what you want, and the flesh or indwelling sin. There's a battle going on there with these thoughts. And, and in, those, in those, the, the war in our mind, that's where we're filled with all kinds of deceit and lies from the enemy, from the flesh, from indwelling sin, that's depositing these ideas, that's, that's trained us to believe certain things to discredit who God is. To have this idea, this picture in our mind that, that God really isn't trustworthy. That God is distant. That God will let you down. Or maybe, maybe that God's disappointed with you. Because you're not measuring up to his standards. You got to got to work a little bit harder. Do more. Fix this area of your life before you come talk to me. They're all lies, but they're devastating lies. They're damning lies because what they do is those lies, we believe them and we act accordingly. And so we keep God at a distance. I remember thinking that I had to get my life back in order after I screwed up before I went to God. Think about that logic. That's like saying, instead of going to have a shower, I'm going to have a bath first, and then I can have a shower. Does that make sense? But before I ask for help, I'm going to solve it, and then I'm going to ask for help? Doesn't make sense. But that's what we believe. I, I promise you, we all believe that to some degree, because none of you, none of us, fully understand who God is. How could you? He's bigger than your mind can hold. And so we're learning and we're discovering and our mind is being transformed through the renewing of our mind where we're recognizing, we're learning what our lies about God and we're beginning and we're learning and it's an ongoing process of replacing with the truth, the truth of who he is and what he's done. But those lies, they extend beyond God. They, they also now apply to us. And we have all kinds of beliefs about who we are. We have a long list of evidences and facts to be able to point to things that have caused shame and, and um, despair and, and even uh, self-hatred and doubt, all kinds of things that how we see ourselves. And, and like, like those mirrors uh, that, that you go to a funhouse and it begins to distort who you are. I think I got one of those mirrors at home, by the way. But because those mirrors that distort who you are, when you look in the mirror, you don't actually see yourself. You see shame projected onto yourself. And you look at yourself and you see all these flaws and all these shortcomings. 
insecurities and anxieties, not good enoughs, should'ves, could'ves, would'ves, and you just think I'm such a failure. Who could ever love me? All of that lies. But then, then we have misconceptions of other people where we think people will only hurt me and I can't trust them. I can't be vulnerable. I got to keep them at a safe distance. And that too is a damning lie. Because when you're keeping other people out all the time, you're also cutting off Jesus. For whatever reason, Jesus has chosen to operate through his body, through the church. Yes, sometimes he will speak to you directly. Yes, sometimes he'll show up to you in direct ways, but he'll never stop there because you were called to be part of a body. You have been called to be part of a community, which requires us to trust, which requires vulnerability which you will get hurt in, I promise you, at some point. Because someone will fail, maybe even you, maybe them, likely both. But it's important that we trust. But the enemy wants to do all kinds of things. The, what, one of the things the enemy loves to do is other people. You know what I mean by that? Those others. And, and it begins to to create a division and a side. Again, this is what the world does because the world needs a common enemy. And if I can find a common enemy and I can rally everyone or get on my side, my allies against this common enemy, and then, then we'll be successful and we'll win. And so we can other people. And when we other people, now we don't have to treat them with respect. Now we don't have to treat them uh, fairly or kindly. Now you can do whatever you want with them because they're not really human. They're subhuman because they're others, they're different. And all this control, all this anger, all this fighting, it just brings death. Because you're doing it on your own, you're disconnecting yourself from the experience in the life of Jesus. Not that you disconnect yourself from Jesus, because can you ever disconnect from Jesus? No, he's in you, you're one with him, you cannot separate yourself from him. You're not nearly that powerful, amen? But I don't have to trust him though. I don't have to use his resources. I can choose to try and do it on my own. And so we're experiencing death in that way. We're experiencing the death of the lies of how we see ourselves, and we're experiencing the death by pushing other people away or attacking other people. And it's killing us. So we need to learn how to fight, how to wage war, but how to do it God's way. And thankfully, again, we have that in our Father's words. So in verses 4 and 5, Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not of this world. They're not based on your own strength and your own ability. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how good you are, how kind you are. It's not coming from you. Instead, they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. They're divinely powerful. It's not by your strength. Romans 8.13 puts it this way, that, that through the Spirit, we're putting to death the deeds, the desires of the flesh. If you and I, if we try to take the flesh head on, guess what happens? You will lose. How do I know? Because you took it on head on. The moment you do that, you've already lost. doesn't matter how long it's going to go on for, you've already lost. It's like the moment you negotiate with a terrorist, you've already lost. The moment you attack the flesh head on, you're on your own. And so we're not doing it on our own. It's divinely powerful. Not by might, not by, by your own strength or power, but by the spirit, it says in Zechariah. 
So we're going to trust Jesus. We're going to trust his Holy Spirit now to attack these lies, these, these attacks going on in our mind, to attack these strongholds, these fortresses. I mean, what a, what a, what a great picture that is that we're, we're coming up against here, these, uh, these fortresses. I mean, it talks about, you think about, again, a, a military base, a military encampment where it almost seems to be impenetrable. That's what we're tearing down. And that's how big these lies are. That's how big these beliefs are. You know, growing up, I remember being told, sticks and stones may break my bones, but lies will never hurt me. And they don't have to. But you know why they do? You know why they hurt? Because I believe them. I give them power. And they begin to, to take root and they take hold and those, ro- those, those roots grow deeper and deeper and deeper and they get stronger and stronger and stronger in my mind. And now I begin to default to them. So I walk into a situation, I already believe that you're going to reject me. I'm already on guard because I think you're going to hurt me. I already believe that you're not safe and I don't trust you. And maybe I come in and I start attacking. Again, we see this in relationships and marriages and friendships, parent, children, siblings, and their fortresses. It's, it's almost as if indwelling sin has brainwashed us to believe certain things. And in working with people, it is, it is one of the hardest things to tear down these fortresses. That's why it's a war. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's impossible. Amen? Right? Because nothing's impossible with Jesus. Hence the reason we're going to assault this fortress with Jesus. I'm not going to go on my own. I'm not even going to trust you guys to go with me. We're going to do it with Jesus. We're going to destroy these fortresses. He goes on now in explaining this idea of we. Right? Beginning in verse, verse 5, we are destroying speculations. I love how he said this we because it's not passive. Ultimately, the only person that can choose what you believe is who? Yourself. No one can make you believe it. You get to choose that, which is good news because that's the freedom you've been given. You you are free to choose to believe the lie or you're also free to choose to believe what's true. You don't have to believe what the enemy's told you. You don't have to believe the, the shame that it's placed under you. Dan, you can believe that you're righteous and holy. That's what's something you get to do. But you know what? He doesn't have to fight that battle alone. We all get to fight with you, Dan. We all get to affirm you and encourage you and do that to one another. And we're together as the body of Christ, divinely powerful with the spirit of Jesus Christ. in us. We're going head on and we're attacking those fortresses. We're destroying. I love that. We're destroying these speculations. These ideas, these thoughts, these schemes, these beliefs, that's what it's referring to, of how we understand who God is, how we understand who we are, and how other people see us or how we see other people. We're destroying all those things. We're raising them to the ground in order to construct and and build what's true, solid truth of what God says about who we are, about who he is and who other people are. And we're destroying these strong barriers or these, these high places, that's literally what the word means, these, these high places. Think about like the castle walls or castle turrets. These, these seemingly uh, impenetrable fortresses. Paul says, we're going to destroy them. We're going to use battering rams. We're going to use bombs. 
We're going to use whatever is in our arsenal to tear those things down, to raise them to the ground, to destroy entirely in order to replace it with what's true, what's powerful, what's good, what's noble, what's right, what's going to give you life and freedom. So he's fighting for the, the Corinthians, fighting for them to believe what's true. And he says, we're going to take every thought captive to Christ. Because just when you tear down all those strongholds, it doesn't mean those thoughts stop coming. Because the flesh will continue to attack over and over and over again till the day you die. You can't banish the flesh. You can't get rid of the flesh until the day you exit the flesh, you exit the earth suit. So until that day, it's going to continue to attack. So much so that this is, this is what I believe, that when you and I do exit this earth suit, when we're no longer in the body, but we're present with the Lord, we're standing face to face with Jesus, I personally believe what we're going to notice first is the silence. No more accusations. No more shameful messages. No more attacks. No more messages of you're a dummy, you're a failure, you're no good, you blew it, you should have said this, why did you say that? That's the stuff that goes on in my mind all, all the time, all day long. I just, just the other day, I was driving along, and, and I just, wham, got hit with those thoughts. And just everything inside me tensed up. And I remember I had my coffee cup in my hand, and I just slammed it on my knee while I was driving. Just so angry at myself, because that thought just hit me like a train. And there was faith sitting right beside me, like, what just happened here? Because the war is ongoing. It will never stop. And so what do I do? Take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, it would have been better to do it before I slammed the coffee cup on my knee. <laughs> but it's not too late. I say, okay, Lord, wait a minute. That's not true. It's not true. You love me. I have to trust you with what was said. I have to trust you with what was done. It's in your hands. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm bringing that thought, and I'm bringing it captive to Jesus, saying, Jesus, what's true? You tell me. Letting him instruct me. And this is why it's so healthy for us to read his word and be studying his word, because as we, the more we read, the more we study, the more you're going to begin to understand when he does speak to you. You may not know it in the moment when you're reading it, but then five weeks later, maybe five months later, a thought will come, and you go, oh, that's right. You do love me. You actually like me. And even when I fail and I screw up, it doesn't change who you are to me. So we're, we're fighting for one another. We're fighting together. But ultimately, you're the one that's going to decide whether you stay in the prison of lies or you walk in the field of freedom. It's up to you. And we're here to encourage you. We're here to love you. And quite frankly, I don't even need you in that field of freedom. If you want to stay in that prison of lies, I'll wait. Because you're free to be there. And I'll just love you right there until you're ready to walk in freedom. And then we'll dance and we'll run and we'll have a great time. And then you can encourage me when I'm back in the prison. We get to be the body of Christ and love one another. But there are some that won't see it this way. Paul warned, in fact, <clears throat> when he left Ephesus, 
right before he, he wrote this letter, in fact, he, let, he called the elders of the church together. And he said, guys, listen, it's your job to pastor. It's your job to oversee. But I'm warning you, after I leave, there will be wolves that come in sheep clothing. These Judaizers, these ones who will try to put the church back under the law, these ones that will be there to sow division, these ones that are here to cause trouble, be on guard, protect the flock. That's what he warned uh, the church in Ephesus. And that's what he's speaking to here. So he says, when I come, in verse 6, we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. He's not attacking them. He's not saying, now listen, there was a moment where you didn't trust me, so now i got to slap your hand for it. No, he's saying, I'm waiting. I'm hoping that you will come to see the truth, see my heart. But those who don't, those that are there to cause trouble, those wolves in sheep clothing, those people, we're going to come with the rod because we've got to protect the church against the wolves. That's what he was talking about in the previous letter. doesn't want to come with the rod, but those that are there to cause trouble, those are the ones that cause mischief, I will protect the church, Paul says, by punishing that disobedience. That's what he wants to do. I want to invite the, the band back up at this point. And we're going we're gonna to celebrate communion in a moment. But uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Because we're fighting together for one another. We're not fighting against one another. Amen. Our battle's not with flesh and blood. Our battle's with the flesh, with spiritual forces. And we get to fight alongside for one another, defending one another, reminding one another what's truth, exhorting and encouraging. And we're going to celebrate communion. And, and I'm going to invite Josh to come up and, and join uh, one of the, the stations with me here. But I want to read to you the first three verses of Ephesians 4. Paul writes, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We don't have to create unity. We already have unity because we're in Christ. But you know what we need to defend? We have to defend that unity because we have an enemy looking to chip it away. We have an enemy looking to attack it. And so we're celebrating communion right now. We're celebrating the fact that there's one Lord, that there's one baptism. There's one, one freedom. There's one new covenant. There's one body. There's one God. And we're united together in that. So let's celebrate communion, communion together. Come up as, uh, as your led. You have been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. 
Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.